Hi there. This week we had a bit of a sound issue on my audio track. Uh, there was a bit some static coming from my sound card that we didn't notice when we were recording. Um, I've edited out most of my content and my picks because uh, it got really bad there. So uh, it lasts for about 30 minutes, and if you can't uh, stand it, we apologize in advance. Uh, but if you'd uh, like to skip ahead and listen to Mark and Jaime's picks around uh, 30 minutes in, um, we might find that enjoyable. And I'll do my picks ne- again next week. So uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll hopefully you enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 178 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitchell and I am sitting in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined as usual by Jaime Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And I'm also joined by Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Um, So just to start off with some fact check. Uh, around 2051 last week, I mentioned there was a God analogy, and I forgot what we were talking about, but um, oh, but the kernel, the kernel bug, um, and I mis misspoke it. So it's uh, basically it's the think of the kernel as a God sitting in a cloud, looking down on Earth. It's there, but no normal being can see it, and yet you can pray to it. So that was an interesting analogy for what a kernel is. So in the follow up column, we have so we talked about the security updates from last or security bugs last week with um, uh, meltdown and Spectre. And uh, so I have a link here in the show notes for Apple's security update for um, 10.13.2 and a bit of explanation about that. And um, anyway, I haven't gone back and uh, updated my Sierra machines at work, but we'll have to do that at some point. All right. And interesting story. We've talked about Panic before, Panic Software. Um, They have um, a number of interesting apps. One is Coda, which is kind of a lets you edit um, different languages through, you know, load up a file through an FTP and and edit it on your your, uh, iOS device. They've also been longtime makers of a FTP client called Transmit, and they brought Transmit out to the iOS platform um, well, You know, pretty much when the iPhones first started up, and they've decided that they're going to um, retire that app, let's say. Um, they're not going to uh, putting, be putting any more work into it. I think it's just basically because it, people just aren't really using it. Yeah, I read the article and, and actually read a lot of comments. There were some interesting points there that uh, there do seem to be a lot of users out there, mainly at least the ones in the in the comments, mainly people who are also using the Mac version and, and also use this version. And there were some interesting things. People saying that they'll stop using it because they need you know they need a complete solution and and some suggestions that that uh, Panic rethinks it uh, and and use the iOS as as a piece of the of the Mac OS version or or as sort of a loss leader or whatever or just a support item uh, and not think of it and think of them as separate products that each have their have to have their own you know, profit and loss. And that's an interesting way to look at it. You know, if you think of the iOS tool as as a, you know, either a marketing uh, item or or a component of a larger solution, multi-platform solution, then, you know, yeah, it, it sort of makes sense that that uh, you don't necessarily have to have as much of a revenue directly from the iOS version. Interesting way to look at it. I think it's an interesting story for us as we've talked about these guys over the past and, and here's a successful company that's building, you know, products for iOS and for Mac, kind of like... Um, 
I think they're in Europe, right? Panic? No, yeah, I thought they were in Portland. Oh, Portland. Okay, yeah. Well, there's yes. I mean, you've got the other successful the Omni Group out there too, right? The Seattle, I think, right? Yes, that's correct. You know, there's sort of two sort of um, benchmarks of what you could do as software developers, right? Yeah, and I'm a little less familiar with how long Panic's been around, but I think they're both roughly in the same sort of generation of, of folks who've been longtime Mac and Apple ecosystem supporters. And so it seems kind of a bummer that Transmit would go away. Um, using it as a as a complement to their, their Mac OS version is kind of an interesting idea. Um, I don't know that I read into it as much in terms of what does it mean for devs, because this is a really... It, it's either the kind of tool you would like to see Apple um, Sherlocking and just making it part of, like, especially the pro line of, of iPads in particular. Um, you know, add it into to Mac OS, add it into iOS, and make it, you know, seamless, uh, just as easy as you can use AirDrop sort of thing. Um, FTP and related bits are one of those things that you would hopefully not have to be doing as much from, from like, your own device, right? Like, I, I definitely see utility if you're... Uh, it's not like we do it, but certainly there are podcasters out there who are, you know, traveling around the world and it's kind of a pain in the neck for them to uh, carry on multiple devices and they would sure love to have, you know, record this on my, I don't know, iPad Pro and, uh, and use GarageBand to get it all set up and then, you know, FTP it back to sort of the mothership for the radio network sort of thing. I, I see that use case, but it's also hard to imagine that that's the sort of use case that can support a whole product line, which is again why I think it would be great to just see it become part of, you know, the actual operating systems feature set itself so that it's there for people who do need it, but it's um, not dependent to have its own profit and loss sort of line leaning into it. Yeah, I, I do actually, I have, I actually own a copy of Transmit on for iOS. I, I mean, I use a different client for um, a different product, FTP on my Mac, which by the way, has been buggy and probably got updated or maybe moved to Transmit, but Transmit's been around for a long time. I remember back in the early, early days of Mac OS X, seeing the little truck there, little, like a little cube van kind of icon. Um, yeah, and I know that it comes up quite often when I look at um, apps on my phone um, that have some sort of file transfer uh, system, like whether they use they integrate with iCloud or Dropbox or Transmits always, always comes up as an option. So I can see why people would like it from that point of view. There's a portability, you know, with your with your single-use device if you're using an iPad or, or even my phone, right? So now that we've got 256 gigs or, or whatever on this iPhone 10, there's plenty of space for, for me to move files around, right? So, um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I noticed at the comment here, I didn't see the comment at the very bottom where they've, they've given their feedback uh, saying that uh, lots of good feedback this is from a couple of days ago and I think they're going to pause and maybe rethink uh, what they're going to do with the product which is kind of cool based on people's feedback. Mark, you have something here about Meltdown and Spectre for iOS? Yeah, so we talked about these two issues last time uh, and uh, one of the points was that the, the fixes for these were predicted to have some performance impact on, on all devices. That's fortunate. Uh, that may or may not be the reality. Uh, but um, there's a little bit of data here uh, in this article about someone who did some benchmarks on their iPhone 6. Uh, and we've got a, a link to this in the show notes. Uh, but it's actually kind of a false alarm. So they did these benchmarks on the iPhone 6 and mm-hmm. found that there was a pretty massive slowdown. I mean, a really discouraging. Right. It, it, was, it was pretty huge. They're talking you know, anywhere from you know the best case, 15% to in some cases, almost 60% lowdowns uh, in performance for certain types of things. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's a fairly depressing read. But when you dig into the comments a little bit, and there's a couple of other links, this turns out that, I, that there's actually kind of a false alarm. Uh, people did some other benchmarks on other devices, and including iPhone 10, and found pretty much no slowdown at all. So it, it looks like this article, although it's it's interesting and it's good that someone did test, was kind of a false alarm, and, and they were most likely inflating the slow battery issue uh, and form of slowdowns, the throttle 
grappling there with this with this issue. So it's an interesting read. Uh, it will scare you if you don't know the the final answer. But uh, <laughs> it turns out that it's probably not nearly this bad. In fact, some of the results in the comments, as I said, show that there's pretty much no impact at all on that, which is great. That, that's good to hear. I mean, uh, anecdotally, I've updated um, my iPhone, my iPad. So if my iPhone 10, my iPad Pro, and my MacBook Pro, and my Mac Mini, all to the latest versions of iOS and High Sierra, actually moved to High Sierra uh, in the case of the MacBook Pro and the Mac Mini. Haven't noticed any um, performance issues so far, with the caveat that I'm not doing like heavy you know, 3D gaming or you know, video editing or anything that would tax it enough to, to really make a difference unless it was like, you know, 50% sort of performance drop. So so that's good. Um, I did encounter some sort of weirdness with High Sierra in my Mac Mini that I've still not resolved yet, and that will actually be part of my uh, pick of the week. Um, mm. But everything seems like it's going pretty smoothly so far, so I'm, I'm very happy about that, especially because I hesitated to move to High Sierra, um, I think prior to the holidays, if I'm not mistaken, when we started talking about all the, the defects coming out. But the seriousness of Meltdown Inspector made me say, forget it, like, I need to go get the latest so I don't get owned by some random JavaScript on the web somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't really seen too many issues with High Sierra. I mean, there's always, of course, with every big update, there's always a couple little things here and there, but I haven't seen anything worse than anything bad. Oh, yeah, I saw a comment today that somebody said that, that High Sierra was the Windows ME of, of updates, but I, I, I don't I'm agree with that at all. I mean, that was a horrible update, Windows ME, but it just seems fine to me. I really haven't got any yeah. complaints about it at all, right? Mm-hmm. Very stable. I mean, I like not like other OSs where we had all these sort of glitches. I haven't seen too many things. I mean, other than a couple of apps that you know, their menu bar icons aren't, aren't updating properly, but that's about it, right? I do have this uh, red uh, menu bar issue. Have you guys seen this? <laughs> no. No, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, okay. Like your whole menu bar goes red? So this is something I've seen, and I've seen online, you know, other people have seen it, although it's, I guess, not particularly common. Uh, it's at some time, and I haven't figured out why or, or, what, or when it happens, but uh, every once in a while, the right half of my menu bar, so where all the icons are and the date and all yeah. that, uh, will turn red for no reason. Hmm. Just half of it, like with black text and red background. Yep, yep. Huh. The left half is fine. The right, ha- the right half turns red. No, no apparent reason. And then it goes away. So it's like the background of the of the icon bar, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, it's interesting. There's an app called Bartender. I wonder if you should get that and see if that makes a difference because you can, like, we use it when we're recording um, videos and stuff like that to hide all the extraneous icons that we don't direct away from the video. Hmm. Um, so I I use that to because you know you only have so much space on your on your menu bar to house stuff and yep. with menu bar there i can you know put things that i don't really use away and then you can just the menu bar icon to get to them quickly right yeah i wonder oh. in this case if it would just decrease the size of the redness that he's seeing well no, i i i suspect it may be a, a bad uh a, like a like i said like my um i use an app called time to record my record my activities through the day right and it used to have like a little clock icon like just like you know kind of like the one password circle right um and it's gone wonky uh, it's fine when, when it's actually recording because it shows me a countdown and it shows what the activity is, uh, what the name of the activity I've chosen is, but, but when it's like at rest, it's, it should just be the, the default icon that seems to be all screwy. So again, I think there may be some, some maybe some deprecated call in, in the extension that's making your menu bar go red. Yeah, well, the old init CDEV troubleshooting method, you know? <laughs> Turn off half of them and see which goes away, right? Yeah, it doesn't seem to cause any problems, so I'm not going to worry about yeah. it. So just a visual glitch, but the bar itself yep. is still usable? So you got the Ferrari version of a OS, right? Yeah, or it's like like haunted. Like he, he hasn't told us that his, his new place is built on the burial ground, and <laughs> when it goes red, like the room gets really cold all of a sudden. Just before we move on, I, I had posted here a link to, to a thread 
that Christina Warren had put up um, about some of the thoughts that she had on iOS sales over the years. And she posted a piece back in 20, 2013, I think, that uh, talks about it. She's responding to the panic uh, article. So if you guys want to, I mean, if the audience wants to uh, have a look through that, uh, read some of the threads and some of the thoughts that people are saying about panic, it's an interesting read. Yeah, I read through through some of that. And I understand where she's coming from on it. I don't I don't even necessarily disagree with uh, sort of the, the premise that um, echoes a lot of some of the things we've said for a, a while now about uh, life sort of being difficult at, at the indie level. And while there have been some things that Apple has changed or, or added that make it uh, a little bit easier, it, it does feel like we're marching towards new user expectations where everything is free. And if it's not free, it's probably uh, freemium. And if it's not freemium, it's got to be enough quality or uh, the very least valuable enough of a resource for me as a user to have uh, say, all right, I'm going to get this subscription to, right? Um, and, and not every app really fits well into that. And, and so that's that's kind of a, an interesting take. I, I don't know that I would consider Transmit and what ended up happening to Panic as being like a bellwether or, uh, you know, rather sort of like indicator of anything happening, like a, like an indie apocalypse or anything. I think we're, we're sort of in the post-apocalyptic world for, <laughs> for indies. Yeah, I agree. And, and it's interesting that the article that she wrote back in 2013 was at the beginning or even before the indie apocalypse right? talking about how um, apps are are making or could potentially be making money so it's interesting to see four years later or almost five years later um, where we are today and I think you're right the, the, I think the pay model for uh, apps is, is changing over time and, and we're getting more towards things like like descriptions and I think Apple's kind of changing some of the you know they now have the trial version uh, available where you can have a trial version of an app right so they're listening to us I think the market is changing in terms of expectations not everybody expects every all the apps to be free anymore um i think and and like you said if you're building an app of quality there's no reason why you can't charge it i mean like i see a lot of games and things like that now are 399 499 like the mist we talked about last week went back and found it it was 699 um you know for an app that was written what 15 20 years ago i mean that's amazing you know you have it and the fact that it's ported over to ios but they, they're not giving it to you that kind of thing right yeah i think the main thing i would ask of apple if they were you know, reviewing podcasts and, and sort of listening to, to what the people say. I think the biggest thing for me is I would like them to be not um, not distortive of the market. And, and by that, I mean, if something new comes out, like a new device form factor, let us charge for it. it I understand the, the incentive on their side and that they, they want to sell you know premium devices. And the compliment to that is it would be great if all of the ecosystem stuff like software was free. Um, and I think it eventually will get there anyways in terms of, you know, there's just going to be a lot of competition and we developers ourselves will, will end up driving down pricing sort of naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd rather see that happen sort of, you know, free market style rather than having it be um, distortive where, as the best example I can think of is the Apple Watch where Apple said, no, you can't charge for watch integration. It's like, well, why? There's no technical reason why. There's no sort of moral or ethical reason why. It was just sort of like their business why, right? Like I, I can come up with 20 reasons reasons why they decided to do that, but it doesn't really make sense from the developer side in terms of aligning our incentives in some sort of way with, with Apple's and the users. And I think that's why you don't really see quality software for the watch. Like uh, just about everything I use on the watch is, is Apple provided. Yeah, I'd like to hear from the listeners if they have any examples of recent watch apps, because as far as I'm concerned, it's, it was a, it, other than the fact that, you know, it's great for notifications and you don't have to pull your phone out of your, your pocket and, you know, some things like external screen for your, your phone, if you want to call it that or notifications right um 
But and that, that's another example. And then another example would be the the iMessages app. We were talking about this yesterday at, the, at our meetup. Um, one of the guys was joking about you know whether he should talk on Core Data or on iMessages apps, and he was being facetious because you know the whole messages, you know the whole um, you know the icons that they had. Uh, I think it was around 2014 or so, and it took like seven steps just to get something going, and then people were confused because they paid for this app, but they couldn't find it on their Springboard because they didn't understand it was sort of buried away under the under the covers sort of thing. You know. Like, like similar to how the stickers are now, right? But uh, people just couldn't find it. And that was a revenue thing that a lot of developers thought there might be some chance of making some money there. And it just turned a bit you know, a complete misstep for the users and for the developers because it seemed too difficult to use, right? Yeah, but uh, and granted, Apple, I did, I did think Apple sort of fumbled the user experience on that one. But at the very least, they didn't distort the market, to, to my point. Like, they didn't say, oh, you cannot charge for iMessage apps. So that's good. I give them, I give them credit for that. Right, but that was pre-watch though, right? Yeah. And, you know, looking forward to the HomePod, which as we record this, it is January 10th. Um, uh, so we're not sure when this is coming out. Whenever that does come out and whenever Apple does come up with a developer story, I'm really hoping that they allow us to charge for our integration with it, whatever that may be. And I think I think we'll inevitably see that people will not want to pay for stuff if it's like, well, do I want to get, you know, the 199 fart skill or do I want to get the free fart skill? Well, I'm going to choose the free one. Like, okay, well, but the users chose that. That, right, so it's, then it's incumbent on us as developers to figure out how we make it so they pay the dollar ninety nine for our app, our skill. Like I, I, I guess I, I to my my point here is that it, I'm hoping they they don't toss extra barriers um, in front of developers and then be surprised when it's like, oh, how come nobody's doing cool stuff? It's like, well, because you kind of destroyed the incentive, right? Like unless you're going to make uh, some sort of alternative program where you're you know uh, explicitly giving out funding. I'm not suggesting they do. I don't think that's a great idea either. We can look at Microsoft and what it tried to do during the um, Windows 8 and Windows Phone era to see how that doesn't work out and it aligns developers' incentives poorly. Um, I think coming back to this uh, this thread on app sales from Christina Warren, I, I'd rather just see developers sink or swim on their own merits versus having sort of Apple interfering at any level. Yeah, and I will fully admit that even though I'm definitely a strong supporter of uh, you know buying indie stuff and, uh, uh, and and voting with my wallet, there are definitely times where I'll just be like, oh, man, I don't want to pay a $1.99 for this stupid thing. I just need this thing for like one use case and we go get the free one um i think a uh, best example i was asking several folks um i know greg responded and somebody else responded with like oh now that peace is no longer available as a content blocker for safari what do people use i think greg mentioned one that was like 4.99 or something and somebody else mentioned one that was free guess which one i'm using <laughs> i'm using the free one right <laughs> so i'm i'm not saying that i'm um being high and mighty on this i even despite my best intentions even i don't necessarily uh, uh, choose in the direction of, of pay for it sort of thing. But at the very least, I, I had the choice, which is, I think, maybe my final point on it. Yeah, that said, I have still have peace installed. I didn't realize it wasn't working or running. It's ghost free, right? So does it not work anymore? For reasons that are unclear to me, when I moved to my iPad Pro and to my iPhone 10, peace did not come along. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's what I was complaining about, the whole migration thing. I, I finally did manage to get my, my stuff migrated over. But uh, I believe I might have the timeline wrong here, but if I, I just assume... It's not being supported it, anymore, for sure. I know that. Yeah, it, it was removed from the App Store um, by Mark Armand. Um, I thought for sure it would still show up as a purchase on my list, but it, it just it just vanished, so I 
thought, oh, it got sacrificed to the uh, 32-bit, 64-bit crossover gods or something. But Maybe you can do an iTunes install or something. Who knows? Yeah, I didn't. Uh, maybe if there wasn't the free option that I found that seems to work really well for me. So, yeah. That was a pretty old app that he stopped supporting a long time ago. So it, was probably, it probably was 32-bit, right? It just doesn't run on your 64-bit phone anymore. No, it's running, it's running on my phone, so oh, okay. on my phone, my 10. Oh, you actually have it enabled on yours? Because it, it yeah, just yeah, didn't that's show I'm running it on here. Yeah. Mm. I haven't really noticed, like I used to notice a lot of weird things like, like you know, I still get some sites that, that, like if I try to unsubscribe from a mailing list, for instance, and it switches over to Safari, sometimes it tells it can't, like the content blocker is blocking the, the, the site where you unsubscribe, which can be annoying. But uh, yeah, I used to see that all the time on my older, my other phones for uh, iOS 11. Maybe they fixed something or whatever. But actually, doesn't Apple have more privacy stuff in iOS 11 too as well? Like you're not being opt out of being tracked and stuff like that? They do have something in there that I, I saw one article about the ad industry very, very grumpy about this, uh, which means it's good for you, the, the user. Um, but I'm not uh, off the top of my head. I can't think of what those things are. It had something to do with like tracking though. I did find a video as I mentioned last week that had like 11 or 12 things that you should be doing in iOS 11 that you're probably not doing or don't know about. And I would put that in my pick, but spoilers, I have too many picks this week. So I'll, I'll maybe I'll do that next week. <laughs> but I did find a video. I'll, I'll post it online. To, about, uh, and it was one of the, one of the things was how to go in and turn on those content blockers and stuff. Oh, so um, one quick one here, hopefully, uh, was, I don't know about you guys, but if you ever run into endless indexing problems on your on your uh, Xcode, I don't know that I necessarily re- even care, like when I'm, that things are taking a long time to index, but there are times when, you know, if you if you open a project, it may take what seems to be forever to index. Um, and I guess there's a follow-up question for you guys about this, but somebody came up with this guy here on this blog. Um, I'll link it in here. It's his blog is Ozu blog, the Ozu blog, and it's his personal blog. And he says that their solution was that if you have uh, one of his senior managers, senior developers came up with this idea that if you're if you're at pro- open a project that another person's working on as well, and it's taking forever for you to index, he's found a way to copy the index over from another person's machine and derive data just that project project and put it pop it into your directory and so in other words you you're copying the index over to uh, your own your own machine and then uh, that immediately clears away the the issue. So the, the title of the blog, the title of the blog post is "How to Fix Xcode in, Indexing Endless Problem" in, and in parentheses in a different way. So I don't know if you guys had a chance to read this, or or do you have problems with your indexing at all on your machines? I've seen it once or twice. Yeah, we have a huge code base at the, the office, which is why I probably yeah. don't even pay attention because it just takes forever for things to happen, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I would I would be I, careful about the uh, about copying the derived data directory if if uh, well, just make sure you're on the right branch when you do that. Oh yeah, okay, that, yeah I was going to ask you. I was going to ask. Is that because that's part of it, right? Though, like the it's sort of a scrap space for builds, right? Builds, right? Yeah, yeah I was a little surprised that it, it worked at all because I yeah. thought for sure there would be some absolute pathing in there somewhere, and apparently it's relative pathing, or maybe it's like a dot index file that gets that the secret sauce that tells that you're finished indexing. So, what what is indexing doing? Do you guys know what, what it's doing in there for folks at home? I don't know for oh. certain, but I can speculate just based on what's unavailable while it's indexing. Um, it looks like all of the IntelliSense uh, autocomplete sort of stuff is somehow related to the index. So I know it's at least doing that. So if I have to blow away the index, you know, derived data stuff, 
um, like I immediately lose that. I lose syntax highlighting sometimes. Like my text just goes all white on black. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious about it. So I have to, to answer your first question there. I have seen indexing go awry and sometimes it seems like either killing Xcode and restarting it or rebooting the machine seems to have resolved it. I've never seen it just stay there forever. But if I do, at least I have this in my back pocket. The, I don't know what you call it. This is like the fecal transplant sort of method. <laughs> <laughs> like, and for, for those of you driving at home who don't know what that is, like <laughs> this is apparently a legitimate medical technique. I'm not making this up. No uh, way. Where, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the people who have, you know, intestinal problems of some sort uh, related to like the gut, the microbiome, the gut flora, um, you can apparently get <laughs> feces from a healthy individual and they can transplant it into your colon, I guess. And, nice. and that, that helps you recover. And that's, wow. that's what this sort of reminds me of. <laughs> <laughs> I might turn off a lot of listeners if I name the show that. Everybody who was uh, listening to this episode during the lunch hour is just suddenly not as pleased with their ham sandwich. He can't be controlled. He's out there in Seattle. He's just, he's a wild man. Um, all right. So, I mean, you got something here about Apple and iCloud. Yeah, it's, I think, probably not going to affect a ton of our listeners. Um, but I just thought it was more of a, an FYI news thing that uh, Apple is going to hand off its Chinese iCloud operations to a local firm uh, in China. And this apparently has to do with Chinese government um, law regulation sort of thing. I think Russia is very similar where um, they want to make sure that their citizens' data is handled in within the confines of their country for legal reasons. Um, so just more of an FYI there. So if, if this impacts you, um, now you know about it. I've definitely seen people uh, with very grumpy opinions about this um, online. I think my two cents is that Apple's sort of in a in a no-win situation because, you know, it, it wants to, of course, do business in China, which means it has to follow Chinese law. Um, it also wants to, you know, protect people's data. Uh, it, it's a company that cares a lot about privacy. And whether you're sort of more optimistic or pessimistic about their reasons why the fact of the matter is that is a, a big part of their business. Um, and the other thing I've seen sort of bandied about is like, well, like Google pulled out and to which I would say, well, one, I think it's a little different because Google uh, may have decided to give up on the sort of business opportunity uh, within China. But the thing that they did not have to deal with is the fact that it's like, well, it's purely speculative here, right? This would be like a shooting yourself in the foot sort of thing. But imagine China said, guess what? Today, no Apple products can leave the country, right? Like that devastates the company, right? Like they, uh, they don't want that sort of leverage hanging over them. So I think probably, you know, with a little bit of gritting their teeth, Apple handed this over. I don't think they would willingly do so, um, by comparison to the, the battles the Apple has had with the U S government, where the political environment is completely different. Um, and they've, they fought very hard for your privacy. So I think, you know, vote with your conscience, vote with your wallet, but I don't know that it's quite as uh, black and white of a, of a situation as I've seen portrayed online. So when you say Google pulled out of China, are you do you mean like the their data storage, like their their, their online services, their cloud stuff, or or have they pulled their manufacturing out of China? I don't think Google. I could be wrong here, and it might have changed over time. I don't think Google ever had much presence uh, physically within China. I think they were routing stuff through Hong Kong, which is sort of complicated because Hong Kong is uh, controlled by China, but treated politically kind of separately for the time being. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's a, it's an interesting thing. Like we, of course, we you know being north of your border north of the border from you guys uh, and like you said the climate being what it is um political climate um the question of where my data is stored is always something
something that that it's often something I think about, right? And um, in the case of China, you know, we know there's a whole there's a whole Chinese firewall thing happening over there where, where politically there and and sure it happens in other countries too that that um, there's a whole what what they see on their Facebook and what they see on their their or whether they even see Facebook is kind of controlled by the government. But here in Canada, you know, like if I've got if I'm backing up my d- data to a cloud, like where is that physical data being stored? I mean, these are issues that we think about. You know, I think about personally, but we also think about like you know uh, from our corporate perspective. Like you know, we 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 like for instance, I can't use iCloud at the office because they there's a potential for data loss and they just don't want to go there, right? So they just block the service. Um, and I'm sure that's pretty common in businesses like ours. But it's kind of interesting that this this kind of that Apple would have to feel that they go to this length to maintain the service for their users um, by creating an isolated thing. But handing it off to a third party firm, firm is kind of weird too, right? Like, Yeah, it, it definitely is weird, which is why uh, I'm speculating that Apple did it with gritted teeth, just given what I, I feel about the company. I, I don't think they were happy about it because it's I don't see them turning around and offering this to other countries. It's, it's a little bit different than, say, um, Amazon Web Services or Microsoft Azure, for sure, the two individual companies who I know who have um, encountered this problem, like let's say for the European Union, which has very, very strong uh, privacy protection policies. Um, I know I've seen those two companies specifically go out and create um, uh, data centers and infrastructure there and have offerings of like, yo, if you if your citizens use our you know, our company stuff, we are going to guarantee that, oh, this person is a European Union citizen, so they're going to get routed to the European Union instance and specifically not have their data in like Seattle or Redmond data centers in the United States. So that, that's that's a more aggressive sort, or uh, not aggressive, assertive offering, uh, product offering to, you know, deal with uh, political aspects of, of where does your data live and, and who has legal uh, authority over that. Yeah, there's an interesting chapter or paragraph at the bottom of this story about the fact that uh, the Apple Watch Series 3 users um, had issues where the government decided to shut down their LTE as well, right? So, so they can buy the watch, but they can't use the LTE service. Yeah, because apparently it uses an eSIM that the Chinese government does not have a uh, capability to monitor and control so it's it's forthcoming but uh, not available to to their citizens yeah usually they, they apple would sort of not sell that product in that country if that was the case like you know we've seen things like apple pay and stuff like that roll out across different uh territories based on on whether the providers could carry it or not right but it, it says here that they had to shut it down right so right stuff. yeah it's it's i mean the whole digital ball territory physical territory versus digital territory the challenge for uh, one country to another, right? mm-hmm. which is what mm-hmm. the internet was supposed to solve. <laughs> anyway, so Mark, you got something here about uh, another uh, High Sierra thing? Yeah, well, if you remember a few weeks back, there was a, a small little incident that uh, Apple had with uh, with some password security, uh, and uh, that made a lot of lot of news. Uh, so we thought, we hoped, I guess, that uh, that was the end of it, but apparently not. Uh, there's a there's a new one that just came out today. This one is not nearly as uh, potentially dangerous as the last one, but it is indication that, that QA is not quite where it should be. Uh, so this this one is in system preferences. If you go into the app store system preference uh, and uh, if you, you know, click on the padlock to lock it and, and then click on it again to unlock it and ask for password, well, you just type in any password and it will unlock it. So it is 100% not secure. Uh, this is in 10.3. Sorry, uh, 13.2 version. Yeah, and, but apparently it has been fixed in the 13.3 beta, but uh, it's still in the in the production versions out there, still there. I just said it's afternoon, and it's it's definitely the case. Now, the truth is though that in this system preference, you know, there's there's not a lot that you're really protecting. I mean, this is this is the one that's a 
says, you know, how long do you want to wait after you're typing your password to to uh, before it asks you a password again when you buy it from the app store or things like that. So, so there's not a, a lot of real secure stuff and it's not really uh, any any uh, sensitive data that's that's being exposed from this. But, you know, if, if there is going to be a password, then it ought, it ought to be a real password. It shouldn't take anything. It just shows things aren't quite, quite right in QA land. All right. So Jaime, you got to pick for us? Yes. I mentioned earlier that I upgraded my systems to High Sierra and the one that that didn't go smoothly with was the Mac Mini um, where, you know, download High Sierra and it's going to go install itself and it reboots the Mac Mini while you're, while it's doing that. And uh, it just got stuck on that, I don't know what color to call it, like white, light gray Apple logo screen. And I didn't think anything of it. I was like, all right, well, this Mac Mini is kind of old and dusty. It's, you know, 2012 probably. And I don't think it was even top of the line at, at the time. So I thought, well, maybe I was just pushing it. Let me just let this run overnight. And I came back in the morning like, oh, it's it's been like this for eight hours. <laughs> it's stuck. <laughs> That's not good. Let me go look up um, how to deal with some of these things. And I found this uh, Macworld uh, how-to, uh, how to fix a Mac that won't turn on uh, article uh, that we'll have in the show notes for those you drive at home. Um, the ones I will point out to you, the ones that I just didn't know off the top of my head to do, like running the disk utility in repair mode. That would be holding command and R while the Mac is powering up. I was able to you know, verify the disk, make sure there wasn't anything wrong with that. Okay, that didn't help. Um, then I got to step five, which is booting up your Mac in safe boot, which is where I'm at now. And I will recommend that rather than just holding shift, you hold down uh, shift command and V to get the verbose mode because it gives me warm fuzzies to see <laughs> lin- you know, uh, stuff, yeah, Linux yeah. sort of style <laughs> stuff going by. So at least it gives me you know some sort of feedback that something is going on. And so at the very least, I was able to complete the reboot and high Sierra installation. And uh, I have not turned off this machine yet to see what happens if I try to reboot it again. But uh, I might end up having to do these other steps like checking the file system, um, resetting the system management controller, and maybe reinstalling uh, macOS on there. But uh, let this be a lesson to those of you out there. This particular Mac Mini does not have any time machine backup. So maybe I should just go get myself a drive and do that while it's still uh, alive. Yeah, that's one thing I always make sure I do a backup before I do that. But it, just pro tip here, number 11 here, make a Genius Bar appointment. Before you before you do any of this stuff, you can ping me too because I, I do this stuff all the time. And um, like I like I said, I think I was talking about before, I've got the server in the back behind me from 2009 that I've been wrestling with trying to get things updated on it. And, and I had a crashed uh, RAID drive um, on it and, and I had to actually replace the RAID battery in it. And so I went and bought a $20 battery rather than paying it. $150 to some battery on eBay that may or may not work. So I, you know, basically rebuilt my own battery um, with a part from China, which I think Mark warned me about using Chinese batteries. But yeah, seeing as Apple uses Chinese batteries, what's the danger, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the, uh, Apple I just gets the high quality ones. Apple. If you buy the low quality one from the yeah. online, you might regret it later. That's true. That's true. Yeah. What's the worst that can happen with my server? It doesn't run anyway. But well, yeah, um, yeah so I, I, I do this all. <laughs> what's that? It burns your house down. That's the worst. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, that was going to be <laughs> like yeah. the sit. Calm, <laughs> sort of answer. We smash cut to like, yeah, yeah. Everybody's yeah. standing outside in their jammies. And resetting the PRAM, that's an old one. And resetting the SMC, especially with power issues. There's, there's different ways to do SMC chip. There's a system management, yeah, system management controller. That's another one. It used to be called, um, I guess it's all called SMC, but it's sort of a power circuit that gets, it's kind of like deleting, deleting your drive data in Xcode. It's one of those things for Mac that won't reboot uh, or won't power on. Um, there's different different ways. Sometimes you have to take the, you used to have to take the battery out of a 
machine that had a removable battery and push the power button and it different. But Google uh, how to reset your SMC chip um, if you ever find you can't boot your Mac to do that. So yeah, good tip. Yeah, the one thing, so having lived in the Windows world in mm-hmm. the long ago time, um, the one thing I find kind of different about the Mac world, it, this is like the first time I've had to do this, which is why I didn't mm. know any of these things. Yeah. Um, there's just so many weird key combinations yeah. to do this, whereas, uh, and, and I don't know what it's like in like modern Windows 10. So my last experience was probably um, Windows XP or Windows 7. Mm-hmm. I got really good at holding, I don't know, it was either F2, F2 F2 or F12. Or F8. You got to hit F8 at the right moment there. You, must you just like hang on to it. And it's like, you still have to know the magic trick. Yeah. So granted yeah. there, but you only need the one trick and then it gives you the menu of like, which of these right. things would you like to do yeah. <laughs> versus the uh, safe boot and the repair bit disk stuff are completely different things. Like the, one does not lead into the other. It's not like some integrated thing. So yeah. uh, maybe that's a testament to the fact that Windows would blow up way more often, especially back right. in the 90s and early 2000s. Oh, you, you missed, you missed um, the fun time with Windows. It was a thing, I forget what it's called now. People can probably scream at their phones, but whenever you put an ex- any kind of adapter card into your PC, uh, this is like Windows 3, before 98 or 95, you had to put in, there was this like a, like a, almost like, like we used to have SCSI addresses on Mac, but there was a, um, this address you had to sort of change, so each card would have a different address that you, when you put an expansion card to put into your PC. I forget what it's called, but it was a real nightmare to try and figure that out. Um, oh, right, right, right. Uh, it was not that registry, your, but it was config.sys, like, so your auto exec. No, it was actually a physical, a physical pin configuration you had to change on oh, the card. Oh, wow. Yeah, like a, almost like a like a binary identifier. I forget what it's called. Oh. Yeah, I know that drives had the like slave and master sort of system. Yeah, it was, it was even even hairier. And you would that. have to take the little jumper and be like, all right, well, the CDRW drive is going to be the slave to the CD drive. So yeah, this yeah. jumper is all the way to the left. This jumper is like three steps to the right. We had yeah. that on Mac too for a while too. When when um, they had uh, uh, we had when we switched over to IDE drives, right? They they had we had that whole master slave nonsense for a while that went away eventually when we got to SATA, right? Yeah, all these crazy. Uh, what was it called? It had a name. It was like. Uh, I mean, while you do that, I think maybe the meta point that I've I've realized is like maybe maybe this wasn't worth Apple's time and investment because macOS was so solid that you normally didn't run into these. And in contrast, it seems like Windows got really good at it because uh, people like me were constantly having to fix their darn machines. And I've uh, not really had any problems with uh, my Mac devices so far. Uh, so the, the this Mac mini, was this like one of the first things you bought? Like uh, the first Mac you got into? Or? So the history behind this one is I bought this one specifically to cover the, what, like the four to six month time period before the, like we knew that the Retina MacBook Pro was almost certainly coming out, Mm -hmm. but it was in that spot in the refresh cycle where I said, well, I don't want to go buy like a non-Retina one and then four months later buy a Retina one. Like that's lame. I think I'll just buy this El Cheapo Mac Mini, which was probably like three to $500 at most. And when I, you know, that'll, you know, let me do some Xcode development very poorly, mind you, even back then, Um, you know, it's not me limp along until the MacBook Pro comes out. And then uh, I'll just use this as like a backup and secondary machine. And that's sort of how it's lived out its life. Yeah, I have a Mac Mini I use for my, uh, my uh, like, iTunes stuff. I like I have a Drobo connected to it. It's a legacy guy. One of the old servers, uh, Mac Mini servers that they used to sell with two drives in it. So I can have a mirrored, you know, backup or whatever. <laughs> I have one in my office at the Jenkins machine, a classic use case. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the, oh, at, at work? At work. Not, yeah. not, at, not home. at home. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. They haven't updated those in a while. They're, they're, they're due time. for an upgrade or they need to be, either do, do, upgrade them or just get rid of them altogether. Um, I can't find this word for that I'm, I'm missing here. It's like IRC 
conflict or something like that. I can't figure out what it was called. It was some weird name. But, but yeah, anyway, that sounds familiar. I, IRC something or other sounds familiar to me as well. Or, yeah, I wasn't sure if that was like internet relay chat or whatever. <laughs> no, I don't think it was that, but it was, or, or IRQ maybe is what IRQ it stood for. IRQ maybe, IRC network integration. Yeah, I don't know. It was some weird it, thing. Like an inter- interrupt request controller or something? Yeah, maybe that was what it, I can't remember. It was, it was just, yeah, it's just, if you say IRQ does do a Windows person, then they shudder. You'll know that they've been around for a while. No. The, the times have changed. I used to be really into the enthusiast side of this and, you know, subscribe to magazines at the time and knew every little itty bitty detail about my um, my setup. And now I'm like, this this thing is like a really nice toaster. It's an appliance to me. I really don't care what's going on. In it. I'm going to, you know, get the best one I can at the time and then just hang on to it until it explodes and then get a new one. Yeah, I think, well, this, so this IRQ thing, I think it was something you physically had to do to the card, like, like put jumpers on it. But I think when with Windows 95 and Windows 98, they entered they entered the new era of plug and pray. So, um, plug and pray. Right. Yeah, you're right. yeah, it's, yeah. Right. it's plug and play, but plug and plug and plug pray, and pray. Yeah, was definitely what, what it was uh, yeah. more. And if anybody ever, if anybody ever asks me if I know anything about Windows, I will deny it. Yeah. You know, I know nothing. Never did it. Never happened. All right, um, Mark, you have a pick. I do. So this one's just for fun. Uh, HBO released just the other day the trailer for season five of Silicon Valley. Oh, show. Cool. So I know you've been catching up on Netflix or whatever, so you're yep. all up date and ready to go for the new one. This should be an interesting mm-hmm. season because it's the first one without T.J. Miller. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, which uh, is, you know, unfortunate for many reasons. You can Google that, choose to. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, but he was a funny guy. Uh, so it's it's kind of sad that he won't be there, but, uh, you know, we'll have to see whether the show can succeed without him or is this the <laughs> beginning of the end? So we'll see. I don't know. I think they, pretty good. they had some, I mean, they got some really interesting characters in that show. They do. Um, yeah. They do. They do need to see the like he was the what was it he was he used to say he was running um, the incubator the incubator yeah he was the only he owned the house that ran the incubator yeah right yeah well if you watch the trailer you'll see what the what's developing with that oh okay cool I yep. have to watch it yep. neat that's cool yeah it's a, a great show <laughs> are they gonna bring in Christopher Plummer to replace him too <laughs> <laughs> now you're spilling over from Spockcast I started thinking about it <laughs> but it started getting funnier. <laughs> Yeah, well, this is the thing. So Jonathan was saying on the last show that we joked about whether Christopher Plummer would come and replace uh, characters, right? And uh, actors that are, you know, in bad repute. And um, so Jonathan just sort of said, yeah, it would be really funny if they just had him show up without without any sort of fanfare. Just, you know, you know, you go up to the bar and, and Christopher Plummer pours your drink, right? So, which refers to another movie. Boy, there. All right. Well, I guess that's it for the picks, eh? Picorama is over. Uh, let's see. So what do we do now? I guess we sign off, right? Indeed. So, hey, honey, if people want to find you on the interwebs, where? Where would they look? I'm on Twitter as at Dev with the Hair. All right. And Mark, hope people want to get in touch with you. Mark R at Smapsoft.com. All right. And I am Timitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine. And that's the best way to get a hold of me. And until next week, we'll say bye-bye. Bye. Goodbye. This has been another wonderful episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There, you can find a summary and show notes for each episode. We list links to the items we talk about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website, and if you can, please write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button. All of these things help others find out about the show, and we really appreciate your help with spreading the word. We are also on Twitter and Facebook. Once again, the podcast's Twitter account is at 
mtjc underscore podcast. You can also support the show by pledging any amount you want on patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Yeah, we were talking about um, this. I just read about this thing today, Mark. But uh, some uh, a friend of uh, like a, a naturalized American citizen was saying that that there's a sort of thing going on with the fingerprints, where if they're not digitally stored, they can just automatically rescind your citizenship. Oh, Have you seen that? I haven't heard about this. Huh? Yeah, some some ruling that the I, I don't know, I don't know if it's because of our friends running the government over there, but um, yeah, it's just weird. So, what is a naturalized American? Is that somebody who's been living there for a length of time and they've done their sort of um, citizenship ceremony thing, or you know? For the term, let me look up here. Naturalized citizen or Canadian, okay. Oh, it just oh, it's it a just legal be, act of which you become a citizen. citizen. Yeah, huh. so it's kind of in some sense redundant, right? If you're a naturalized citizen, you are a citizen. Yeah, but I guess that's different than being born a citizen, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Huh. Don't you wish you lived in a in in the states, Tim? In crazy states, crazy <laughs> nice things. Yeah. The most controversial no, thing he did is, is the Tim Horton thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you heard about that. So we yeah, you sent out an article about it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it was uh, Jaime found that one because he's a big oh, oh. fan. But so what, what they did was they raised the minimum wage in Ontario to $14 an hour from 12 or something like that or 10 something or 11. It's, it's gone up quite a bit. And it was our premier who decided to do that. She's, you know, he's pretty good making changes. And so Tim Hortons decided rather than because they had to pay this minimum wage that they would take away benefits to people who they were paying like they, that people who were like full-timers they took their benefits away to away like like that they were paying for them away from them so that they could pay the, the people who were making less money and as a result, if you work it out, the people who were making more than minimum wage before are now making less than minimum wage now, based mm. on what the based on the way they they back backtracked all their benefits and stuff like that, right? So rather than like you know raising coffee by a nickel or whatever, which is what they could have done to, to offset this this uh, cost, which like it's affecting small businesses the most, right? But rather than doing that, Tim Hortons basically, and it's and it's not the corporation, it's it's individual franchisees are doing this, right? Um, surprisingly, one of the franchise places is owned by Tim Hortons daughter i think <laughs> you know so. so who who actually was tim horton tim horton was a hockey player uh, he was a toronto maple leaf hockey player okay. yeah and okay. uh he died he died he got traded to the buffalo sabers and he died uh crashed in st Catharines on the way home from a Oof. game right because he used to live in toronto but um yeah but before before he died he uh he opened this he had this idea open a coffee shop and sell donuts and stuff right so it was like you know we didn't have anything like that before i think we had mr donut back then uh, but yeah it was it was started he died in like the early 70s I think right hmm. yeah so I don't know when when did Dunkin Donuts start it was the same sort of idea you know yeah. coffee and donuts right uh, Dunkin Donuts certainly was around when I was a kid so it was definitely around mm-hmm. the 70s and it was big back mm-hmm. then yeah so I don't know when it occurred I don't know I don't know why he like the thing back then like the hockey players didn't get made didn't make a lot of money back in the day like they uh, you know they like people like Gordie Howe like Gordie Howe you know he was he was you know, they, they had to re- go back and redo their pension plan because uh, the hockey players back in the day like they, they were like you know God 
odds to people, but they were paid like they were like a lot of them ended up like leaping in cars when they were old, right? Mm. So yeah, it's pretty brutal. Yeah, yeah. I can hear someone. Okay, uh, let's try and find a history of Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> yeah, well, you do that. I'm looking for Tim Hortons. So 1950, it was founded in Quincy, Massachusetts. So this was ha- founded in 1964 in Hamilton, Ontario, by Canadian hockey player Tim Horton, who died in '74, and by this guy named him and Jim Charade. So they, they initially started as hamburger restaurants, and then they were switched over. Did you have Friendlies in uh, in Canada? No, I don't know Friendlies. I've heard the yeah. name though. Yeah, it was. They're not around much anymore at all. But when I was a kid, they were everywhere. At least in New England, it was a mm-hmm. ice cream store, mm-hmm. and uh, where you would go to get the you know, the big banana splits. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I've been following a little bit of the um, uh, con- continuing the U.S. versus Canada stuff. Uh, Bombardier versus Boeing has been kind of entertaining to watch. Boeing. So, yeah. so the, the so the crux of this is that uh, the claim is that Bombardier, which is a Canadian uh, regional jet manufacturer, I've heard of them. Yeah, they also supposedly <laughs> supposedly sold uh, back in 2016 sold 75 of its C series jets to Delta, mm-hmm. and Boeing is claiming that Delta paid only 20 million per plane, which is well below an estimated cost of 33 million, and what Bombardier charges in Canada. Mm-hmm. So Boeing's like, whoa, 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 that's that's not cool. Like, what the hell? Uh, to which Bombardier is saying, like, well, you don't have a competitive product, right? Your 737 is a lot bigger than a C-Series. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of the back and forth in this is that uh, U.S. Uh, trade is saying that it's going to toss this, like, enormous, like, 300% tariff is what the number, I mean, it's a scary number, but just to scare people, a uh, number that we, we would throw on it. And that's obviously not a pro-NAFTA sort of thing. And Boeing's now also looking at investing oh i should say uh, along the way here uh airbus decided to invest heavily in the c-series program so bringing the europeans into it and now boeing's like well maybe we'll heavily invest in embraer a competitor regional jet manufacturer from brazil hmm. so it's it's kind of causing the aerospace equivalent of a world war for lack of a better term so we're going only be- all because bombardier sold their their planes at less than what they think they should be worth or- uh, less than cost not like oh, oh we're taking less profit but like we are uh, illegally dumping product onto the market. Really? Oh, wow. Why? To, to push the market the value down or something? Or to, to push out competitors, but it's the sort of thing a company can't do. You, you literally cannot afford to do this in aerospace without the backing of a government like Canada. You may recall that Boeing and Airbus went toe-to-toe in the World Trade Organization regarding subsidies on both sides, the respective airplane programs, the A380 and the Boeing 787, respectively. Mm-hmm. And what is it? So I missed what, what, what you were saying about those guys they were so airbus came together as a uh, a european a pan-european consortium to ensure that the um aerospace market wasn't completely controlled by the americans at oh, okay, this okay. point so i think airbus this would have been boeing and donald douglas yeah, okay. boeing and mcdonald douglas merge it's like well hold on now we don't it's even worse not only is it just americans but it's just boeing in the commercial space right so, right. so they created airbus which is predominantly german french and secondary British and um, Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, they made the Concorde, right? The, uh, that's a good question. It, it, it yeah. may not have been Airbus at the time because Airbus is relatively new like 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. They had some other name before. Oh, okay, I actually went to the, when I was in France 20 years ago, I went to the Airbus plant on a tour and they had a hmm. Concorde out front. Yeah, I've seen one here at the um, they have one at the, was the Museum of Flight. Yeah, they, were, they have one in um, at the Smithsonian too in uh, in um, What's that uh, airport? Dulles, I think. Yeah, that was a big. Fan you of could those. solve the economics. I mean, with modern technologies, I wonder if I wonder if a Concorde-ish style airplane could make sense. Apparently, they were ridiculous. 
was like $10,000 a seat or something ridiculous like that to fly back and forth. Crazy money. Crazy money. Yeah. And so you've gotten newer. When flying was kind of a uh, an elite thing to do. Yeah. yeah. People would wear, would wear suits when they were flying. And, yeah. yeah. Well, you can, but the thing is with the Concorde, you could get to Europe in three hours, I think, like that. Something like that, right? Something like that, yeah. But they couldn't fly over the continental United States um, at supersonic speeds because they would break windows and stuff, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah. I bet, I bet, though, that with modern noise suppression technologies and with modern uh, air traffic control systems where they're not flying in these enormous lanes, but they could fly a little bit more GPS-guided, more directed lanes. To be fair, there are huge chunks of the U.S. where it really won't matter. There's like middle of nowhere, you know, central country. United States. Mm-hmm. Flyover country? Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. Like you, you couldn't do it, you know, in New York's airspace or L.A.'s airspace, but middle of nowhere, Nebraska, I bet you could do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Modern, modern uh, fuel-saving techniques, you know, General Electric and Rolls-Royce and Pratt & Whitney have got fantastic stuff. Um, Boeing and Airbus have both done really good stuff with um, composites, so non-aluminum for uh, for the body. The thing is just, is the market big enough? Is it bigger than just, oh, um, people who fly on Emirates and Singapore Airlines are the only ones who can afford to do it, mm. which is a, a big reason why I've been schadenfreudenly, if that's a term. I know schadenfreude is. Yeah. Yeah. I know schadenfreudenly is, uh, but I'm making it one uh, watching the A380, the, the jumbo Airbus struggle and having Airbus consider whether it might have to cancel the program. Hmm. It's like like one third of all their orders are from Emirates, and uh, I think instead of selling twelve hundred like they thought, they're only selling like three hundred total hmm. after all this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah. this um, international competition is uh, is getting me geared up for the Olympics coming up in about a month, <laughs> <laughs> where even Canada becomes a hated foe. Hmm, really? Well, oh, because it's Olympics. those darn it's devils winter running winter around Olympic. in their deadly do right outfits. Winter Olympics. We we just uh, we just uh, won the uh, gold in the juniors. So we, I think the Americans lost in the semifinals to the Canadians or to the, maybe to the Swiss, actually. We just played against the Swiss, which haven't won and neither one of our teams had won in the last three or four go-rounds.